Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Father, I pray that these words would speak to us, that you would guide us, you would open our eyes to your truth, to who you are and who we are in you as your children. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Again, we get the chance to sing praises to God, to gather as a family, as God's people, um, as the church, to worship Him. And not just us, but we get to gather with other people throughout the entire world. Other people today are meeting at this moment to sing praises and worship to God, to hear His Word, to grow in faith, to grow in understanding. Um, it's a privilege for us to be able to read the Word of God. Now, I remember growing up, my dad was the preacher, and usually when preaching came, that's when I tuned it out. And my dad would say, this is a privilege, and I'm like, for a nap. But that was when I was young and I was immature, right? Ah, hopefully, whether I'm boring or not, the Word of God is not. That no matter what is said today, that it's the truth. That is our hope, and it's the truth that transforms us. It's the Word of God that transforms us. And it is a privilege for us to come together to hear the Word of God spoken to understand and know who Christ is more, who we are in Christ, what he calls us to as, as his church. We've been working through the book of Galatians and there's been a lot of justification and law and not doing just so that you can be made right in the eyes of God, knowing who God is personally, being known by God. What, is, what does that mean to have a deep and intimate relationship with God Paul is crying out to this church, to these believers whom he brought to Christ, who he showed Christ to. They believed, they were saved, they were justified, they were accepted by God, by faith, through the grace of Jesus Christ. And now they're listening to these people who come in and say, no, you actually need to do works. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law in order to be made right in the eyes of God, in order to be accepted by God. And he says, no. That's not how things work. You've already been justified. You've been saved by grace through faith, not by works. And when you did that, when you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, He transforms us as His people. He changes us. He removes the yoke of slavery to the law, to having to be good enough. Because we can't be good enough for God. We just can't. It's impossible, and it's a burden upon us. And then Christ says, as we looked last week, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is light. My yoke is light. Take that heavy burden off. I have borne it for you. Believe in me, 
believe in me and feel the joy of the weightlessness of grace. There's a relationship Paul is trying to get at. There's a relationship between justification and sanctification. Justification, again, is being made right in the eyes of God, being righteous in the eyes of God. God demands perfection. We have to be perfect to be in his presence. To put it even more simply, to be justified means to be accepted by God, to be accepted by him. You are allowed into my presence, he says. And then sanctification is to be made more and more into the likeness of Christ. So the relationship between justification and sanctification At the center, all of that for Paul is Christ. For anything apart from Christ leads only to legalistic thinking, which is obey the rules and then you can be accepted by God, or moralistic bondage, seeking the highest good for myself and others. And then I will be accepted by God. And Paul is saying, neither of those are Christ-centered. And if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. He says right at the beginning, if you accept circumcision, if you accept the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And that's the the crux of this passage. If we accept any work of the law or of our own will and our own desires to make us acceptable to God, then Christ is of no profit, of no benefit to us. So what is this profit? What is this benefit? And isn't using Christ as an advantage or a profit simply diminish Christ's worth and glory as the Son and Savior. And there is a definite danger when we look to Christ and we see him just as a a means to an end. I'm going to believe in Christ just so I can be in heaven. That's, That's a danger, but a healthy understanding of and belief in Christ's sacrifice upon the cross has such a great advantage to us as his people that without that advantage, we would be lost destined to an eternity in hell, away from God's presence. So, understanding the advantage that Christ has for us holds eternal implications. This is not just the here and now thing. This is not to make sure that you feel guilty enough that you're going to put enough in the offering plate. If that's what you think, keep your money. We don't need it. Or just to get you in the seats. If that's what you think, oh, you're not hearing us correctly. We want to come to be accepted by God, to give him the glory, to believe in Jesus Christ, to have a healthy understanding of belief and belief in Christ and what he did for us. Paul points to four advantages in this passage. Christ works for us. Christ's grace towards us, our hope of our future righteousness, and Christ's love through us to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So this whole book is not focused towards unbelievers. Oh, I just wish you would believe. My hope is you would believe. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to people who have been saved. He's trying to teach them to understand you know who Christ is. You are God's people now What does that mean? How is this an advantage to you? So the first advantage for the people of God, for the church, is Christ's works. Now it's important to remember that the Jews worked to obey the commands of the law of Moses as best as they could, right? We've talked about this a lot. 
They believed that the more that they, the more that they obeyed, the closer they came to receiving the righteousness of God. But it was actually a losing effort for them. It wasn't enough. So turn to Romans chapter 10. Paul talks about this. Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4. This is what Paul says to the church in Rome. Chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. For I bear them witness, he's speaking of the Jews, for I bear the Jews witness that they have a zeal for God. Man, they are zealous. I'm going to obey God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, the Jews believed that they, if they could establish their own righteousness through their works, then their obedience to the law, then they would receive God's righteousness. He would look upon them and say, oh, you tried really hard. Now here's my righteousness. This is good enough. That they would be made right and acceptable to God. They would be justified. But instead of receiving God's righteousness, they actually rejected God's righteousness trading it for their own righteousness. They were ignorant of the fact that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ's life, his death and resurrection, his perfect obedience to the law and the commands of the Father, his perfect works rendered the law obsolete for righteousness. Christ himself even says in Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ's perfect works fulfilled the requirements of the law for the righteousness and the justification of those who believe in and submit to his kingship. Should we accept any requirement of the law for our righteousness, then Christ's works are of no advantage to us. They are of no benefit to us. And no perfect works of Christ means we must fulfill the perfect requirements of the law in his stead. I testify again, he said, Paul says in verse 2, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. But keeping the whole law is impossible, as James says in James chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Christ's works for us as his people, are of unlimited advantage. You know what that means? It means he covers all of our works. He does all of it. It's not like he does 95 or 99 or 50% and we have to do the rest. He does all of it for us. To rely upon our own works to earn God's acceptance has no benefit for us. It brings another yoke, another burden upon us that we cannot fulfill. And speaking to somebody once, they said, I sure hope when I get to heaven, I've done enough good that God would let me in. And I told him, I said, that's not how it works, praise God. Because I'll tell you, you haven't. I know you and you know me. We haven't done enough. It doesn't bring benefit to us. It only brings bondage and chains and it weighs us down. 
And Paul says, Christ removes that bondage. The second advantage is Christ's grace. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Christ's perfect works are granted to our credit only through God's grace. You know what grace is? Unmerited. So how do you earn his works? How does, how does he decide whether or not he's going to put his grace upon you? He just decides to put his grace upon you. There's nothing you can do to earn his grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace, Paul says. But to trust in our own works for God's acceptance is to be severed from Christ. He uses that word purposely. To trust in our own works is to be cut off from Christ's grace. Now, should I take a knife and I cut my finger off? That finger is rendered useless right? It's no longer, it no longer has the benefit of receiving the blood required to keep it alive. It no longer receives the signals from my brain to move. It no longer is effective or efficient as a finger. And those of you who like to argue will say, well, then you just put it back on and you sever it. That's a whole nother one talking about grafting, and that's a whole nother sermon, okay? We're not going to get into that. Christ for us, or when we try to do it on our, on our own, it's not that Christ is severed from us. We are severed from Christ. We are severed from his grace. We are rendered useless, or better said, our works are rendered useless. No matter how good, no matter how good they are, they are useless, ineffective, and inefficient in our justification being accepted by God. This self-expulsion from the grace of Christ, this purposeful rejection of the truth of the gospel message results in nothing but rejection by God. For only the works of Christ given to us by the grace of Christ through our faith in Christ will bring God's acceptance. That's where our hope is found. That's why he says the very next thing, the hope of righteousness. We're, we don't sit back and we go, boy, I, I, sure ho- I hope this is enough. And that hope that Paul speaks of is not a wish. God says it's going to happen, and so our hope is that it is going to happen. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves wait for the hope of righteousness. When we reject the requirement of our righteousness and accept by faith the gospel message of Christ's righteousness for our justification, Oh, we rejoice. We rejoice, not because we are suddenly made right in the here and now. I mean, we're justified immediately before God, but there's still a problem, right? We have sin. We don't perfectly obey God's commands. Even as God's people, we struggle to do that. We're still sinners, but we are sinners covered by the righteousness of Christ. And so we ourselves wait for the hope of righteousness. We wait for that future day when Christ will come riding on a white horse as a conqueror with the word of God, the truth of God coming out of his mouth like a double-edged sword, sweeping this rebellious and sinful world with his judgment. Those who trust in their own righteousness and their own works will fall down with fear and trembling knowing that the rejection of Christ has sealed their fate. 
But we who stand on Christ's works and Christ's grace are eager for that day of judgment. Oh man, we want it. We want it. Not just because we like judgment. (laughs) Because on that day, the dead in Christ will rise, the righteous will stand with their Savior and King in triumph and joy. For those who trust in works, that day of judgment is a day of dread. But for we who trust in Christ, that day is a day of confidence that we belong to him. There's no fear that he will reject us. It's nothing but joy. The fourth advantage is Christ's love. Now this is where he starts to make a shift. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. How it counts for anything. What is anything? Anything. It has no value. It has no value whatsoever to us. Our works of righteousness do nothing towards God's acceptance of us. But they also do nothing towards God's will while here on earth. To, to, to be circumcised or to follow the calendar or to follow the law is not doing God's will in the sense of perfection. Okay, if I follow the law, the law, then I will be able to, as he says here in a second, love like I'm supposed to love. He spent, Paul has spent chapters speaking mostly of our eternal state of justification before God, and now he begins to turn his attention towards sanctification, God's people doing God's will. And he says, following the law is not doing God's will. If my works do nothing towards God's acceptance of me, then why would I do anything good? Because one who is truly saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ cannot be justified without also being sanctified. This is the, you ever heard this, the fruit inspection? You heard of inspecting fruit? You see what's bad and what's good? If a tree says, I'm an apple tree, and it's making oranges, it ain't no apple tree. If somebody says, I'm a Christian, and they hate their brother, the love of God is not in them. This is the fruit inspection. Now, we are imperfect fruit inspectors, and we have to remember that, right? Because then we become self-righteous, which he addressed here pretty soon, too. We cannot be justified without being sanctified, and we cannot be sanctified without first being justified. There are two sides of one coin. In Christ, my good works flow not out of my own will and my own goodness, but through the will and goodness of God, which flows from God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within me. That's why he says the Spirit in verse 6. Our only, only faith working through love, only faith given by the grace of God, working through the love of God in us enables us to love one another as brothers and sisters of Christ. Okay, that was a really confusing sentence, okay? Listen to this one. Only faith working through love, in other words, only faith given by the grace of God working through the love of God in us, through the Holy Spirit in in us, enables us to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Otherwise, we're just putting up with one another to be Minnesota. Minnesota nice? Minnesota nice? passive-aggressive, 
Like, well, you know, I don't want to hurt his feelings, so I'm going to do something else that I'm not really going to get blamed for because I really don't love him. I'm just going to put up with him, okay? There are times when you should just keep your mouth shut, right? Because we realize we're sinful. But only faith working through love accounts for anything, means anything. Only the love of God in us that he has given us through his spirit enables us to love one another as, brother, as brothers and sisters in Christ, not because we've earned it, but because Christ demands it. Not because we're perfect, not because we don't annoy one another, not because we don't say and do stupid and hurtful things, but because you're my brother or my sister in Christ. Not because you look right or you act right, but because you're saved. Now, how do we read that Paul is speaking of loving the church and not loving the world? Loving the world is important, right? We need to be a witness. That's not what Paul's getting at in this passage or other scripture passages, and it's not that that's not important, okay? But specifically, how do we know that Paul is speaking to the church, that we need to love one another and not specifically to the world, to the unbelieving world? Well, in the, just a few verses later, Galatians chapter, chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, this is what he says. So this is going to be in a couple of weeks we're going to work through this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity of the, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we'll get into that in a few weeks. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul then uses the next 21 verses after that to illustrate what faith working through love looks like. Our love for one another as God's people is accepted, adopted, as accepted, adopted, and full-fledged heirs of the inheritance of God's promise to Abraham thousands of years ago is evidence that Christ is of advantage to us. Our love for one another is evidence that we stand on the grace of Christ alone for our justification and for our sanctification. Our love for one another is evidence that the indwelling Spirit of God is not done with us, is changing us from one degree of glory to another, making us more and more into the likeness and into the character of God. He's changing us. He is active. And when we change, I've said this in the past, we go, well, I don't feel like I've ever done it. Okay, look back your life 10 years ago or five years ago or even a year ago. Are you more patient than you used to be? Maybe you're still not quite patient enough, but are you more patient? Are you more grace-filled? Are you more kind? Do you have more self-control? Are you fighting sin more now than you were? That's the Spirit of God working in you. Now, we have a role to play in that, but that's only by the grace of God that we are changed. And when we are changed, when we see the evidence of Christ working in us, guess what? When, when things blow up in a church and in the family of God, we love one another. Too often people leave churches for 
silly reasons in the end. In the end, silly reasons. We should never leave a church family like Elm Creek lightly. Now, there will be times when you have to leave a church if, if they're preaching false truth. Okay, if the leadership is not willing to do discipline at all with anybody and letting, let everybody do what they want to do, that's a problem. We stay together as a family and we love each other. We pray for one another. We hold each other accountable, which means you may need to be called out in your sin by a brother or sister who loves you. I see two implications of this, this truth. That is to love one another, to have the grace, to have the, the works of Christ. How does it affect us right now? Well, first, if we rely upon our moral living or our rule, following the, the, our own will to make us acceptable to God, what happens when we aren't moral enough or break one little rule or your pastor stands up and he says something stupid or is wrong? If God doesn't demand perfect obedience to his desires and his will, then God is not a perfectly righteous and just God. For that would make us still sinful and imperfect when we enter his presence. If he, in other words, if he, if he demands, if he doesn't demand perfection from us, then God is not perfect. And you may say, well, I mean, he could still be perfect and just show us grace and accept everybody. That is not who God is, and that's not how he reveals himself in Scripture. God cannot have any sinfulness in his presence, which means something has to happen to us. If God doesn't demand perfect obedience, we're lost. And he's not a perfect God, but he is a perfect God. But if he does demand perfect obedience, which we all know is impossible for us to fulfill, then something has to happen to us. And something has to happen for us. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live and die in our place. If you've been a believer your entire life and you go, yes, amen, now move on, I want something deeper, you're missing the point. If this has become something that is just simple and rote and yay, the realization that if we want to go deeper in Christ starts here. And the realization, Christ saved me. I did not save myself. Any knowledge I have of God is because Christ has shown it to me. Not because I'm smart, not because I've had more education, not because I spent more time in the Bible. God has revealed that to me through Christ, through his perfect obedience, through his willingness to take himself um, the, upon himself the punishment of our sinful rebellion against God. He fulfills all of God's requirements of righteousness. But only for those who believe. Only those who believe in and submit to the lordship of Christ are accepted by God to receive the full inheritance of eternal life and the eternal presence of God himself. This, this could be like, yes, I'm not perfect. Yes, you know, God is loving and God is good. This is where the cutoff comes. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you are not saved. You're not accepted by God. 
Only those who believe actually receive the advantage of Christ. Otherwise, everything Christ did is on you and on me. And how are we doing with that? Man, we're not doing good. We never will. If we rely upon our moral living or our own rule following, we will make, um, we will not be acceptable before God. And the second implication, if we believe in Christ, if we stand on the grace of Christ alone, if we are justified before God, if we are his children, then we are called to love the church. We are called to love the imperfect, at times hypocritical, sin-tempted, and messed up, screwed up church. For Christ lived and died for us. Thank goodness he didn't just walk off and say, God, I'm sorry. Mark's a loser. I mean, he can't follow you worth nothing. Why would you want me to die for him? Well, Christ goes, yeah, Mark can't do this. I love him so much, I'm going to do it for him. Christ died for us. It always drives me bonkers. Sometimes I'll just be honest here. This is not in my notes, so it's going to get me in trouble, I'm sure. Right? Doesn't it just kind of drive you bonkers when people say, well, good thing Jesus didn't do that, right? Because, you know, you're like getting all mad and angry at somebody and irritated, and it's like, ah, I don't want anything to do with that person. They don't know what they're talking about. And say, well, I'm glad Jesus didn't do that to you. And we kind of just, ah, you know, but it's true. Christ knew who we are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows how messed up the church is. And he says, that's why I came. That's why I'm here. To die for you. The death that you could not die. To live the life that you could not live. Praise God that he didn't turn away from us, but instead sacrificed himself for such a chief of sinners as you and me. Self-righteousness does not justify, and it certainly does not sanctify. Let me say that again. Self-righteousness, I'm good enough. If you could all be like me, you'd make it. That's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness does not justify, it does not make you right before God, and it certainly does not change you from one degree of glory into Christ. It creates a divide. It creates a divided, biting, and devouring church. But a church whose faith works through love reveals an imperfect people who are united in Christ. Christ alone. Why do we gather together? Because we're all good enough? Because we know the one who is. Because we have Christ. And if you're here this morning or you're listening to this and you don't know Christ, you don't have that relationship with Christ, you know, Christ is saying, you're not perfect. You don't need to be perfect. He's reminding us as a church, right? You don't have to be perfect to be accepted. By God. You're accepted by God. Now go live out that acceptance by my power in you. For somebody who doesn't know Christ, say you can't be perfect. Just attending church or nowadays listening online, right? That, that does nothing for you. It might give you some information, but it doesn't save you. Coming this morning does not save Reading the Bible does not save. Is that sacrilegious to say that as a pastor? No, Christ saves. Church informs, it teaches, the Bible reveals. And through those things, God makes himself known. But these things do not save. God saves through grace, by faith, through Christ. And so for us as a church, Elm Creek, a church whose faith, if, if we're, if our faith 
works through our love of one another, we see people differently. That doesn't mean you're not, it doesn't mean I'm not going to annoy you, okay? I, I guarantee you, I've been on this earth long enough, I know I drive people bonkers. I know that. I don't know why, I think I'm great, but I could see why I would drive people bonkers. But I also praise God for those people who show me grace and say, you know what? <sighs> I'm not perfect either. Mark drives me crazy, and I'm sure I drive him crazy. I'm telling you, guarantee you, some of you drive me crazy. Should I point out? No, I'm not going to point out. We love each other. We care for one another. We live life together. We hurt. We cry. We laugh. We go through difficult times together imperfectly. You ever been at a funeral and people speak to the family? And as you're listening to them, you're like, stop talking, stop talking. I always tell families, people will come up and they will say things that are hurtful. And they mean the best out of it. Like when Katie had um, a miscarriage 16 years ago, and her friend came up and said, God needed that child in heaven. And I went, First of all, that's not how that works. It's not scriptural. Second of all, how do you think that's going to, that, that's not going to help us. But we show grace and we go, they mean well and her heart is right. She's wrong, but her heart is right. And I love her anyway because she's trying. Christ showed me grace. I think I can show her grace. That's hard. But the only way we could do that is if we're justified before God and sanctified by God. Communion. Communion is a time for us as a church to come together and to remember what Christ did for us. And every time we go, like, I remember, what, what, what am I asking for us to do during this time right now? And we take the bread and we take the cup as God's people. Now, I guess let's just start there. Why, why do we say as God's people? Because if you're not a part of the church, whole church, not Elm Creek, but the church of God, universal church, if you have not believed, if you have not been saved by grace through faith, you don't get this. This is a reminder for us of what Christ did. He died to save a sinner like me. And we do it together as a family to be reminded that Christ died for sinners like us. And he commands us, come together in all of your imperfections, all of you being justified perfectly before God and accepted by God and being sanctified by God and remember who's the center of it. Who we are as God's people is not centered on me or you, or the ministries we do at Elm Creek, or having a nice facilities, or comfortable chairs, or a great worship team, or nursery, and wonderland, and kids stuff, and youth stuff, and adult stuff. That's, all of that is meaningless if Christ is not at the center of it. And communion is, is yes, it's a remembered service, but it's a service and a reminder for us, not just what did Christ did, but what is he doing now? Who are we as God's people? We're God's people. We're not our people. We are God's. In Christ, we are unified. In Christ, we are justified. In Christ, we are sanctified. And this service is a reminder and a remembrance of he's the center of our lives. And so there's a chance for us as God's people to confess sin before God before we take it. Because we don't want to take it in an unholy manner. This is, this is a reminder for us as a church to come together to go, you know what, we're all imperfect, but we know the perfect one, and we are his. And if you're not a believer, we ask 
that you refrain from that because you, you can't fully grasp and understand the seriousness of what Christ did for us. And we beg you, believe, believe, and you will be saved. Believe and you will be accepted. And God will sanctify you. You don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. You have to be a member of the community the, of God, the church of God, to be saved. And so as we take it, may we remember Christ, what he did, but that he's the center of who we are. Confess, find joy, and rejoice. The hope of righteousness that we have. So as they're passing out the communion, the bread and the cup, let's just hold it together. We're going to take it as a family all at once to signify and to show we are God's people united together in all of our imperfections because we know the perfect one.